This is a Sunday talk by Andrea, titled, Loneliness, the Heart of Longing, recorded February 11, 2001, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So the talk today is, uh, what is loneliness? Shana asked the question, once you know who you are, can you ever be lonely again? And so Joel asked me a couple of days ago (laughs) if I'd be willing to talk about this today. And I just want to say, given our teacher Joel, who's immensely organized, and when he presents a talk, it is so perfectly and exquisitely and logically explicated. I have taken notes, and I am going to try to. (laughs) Because as we all know, I start to talk, and (laughs) So I've been informed that there is ample longing and loneliness in the audience today. So this is very good. (laughs) So we can relate directly to to our immediate experience. Um, The word loneliness. Uh, for those of us who have that uh, etymology, Parson, what is it, Parson? Is that the name? Anyway, it's a book that looks up the roots of words, etc., etc. It's a Germanic word, loneliness, coming from alone. And alone comes from the putting together of all, A-L-L, and one, O-N-E, all one. All one is described or defined as solitary. Utterly alone, only one. Interesting. Then there's loneliness that is apart from others of its kind, isolated, longing for companionship. Now where the all one and the alone is with nothing else or no other else, the loneliness is the already sense of their being self and other, and the longing for companionship or camaraderie. So, given that, that kind of says it all, doesn't it? (laughs) Sometimes just the definition of a word can really give you a good indication of how words affect our experience, (laughs) and vice versa. So, we can all relate to feeling that there's something we need, something we want, something we're longing for. Now, the very longing itself, the very desire for companionship, or the desire for connection, or the desire for that which is unknown, but simply the movement, the movement of awareness out of itself, is considered by mystics, is considered by the great teachers to be the very essence of what's called the beloved, or the Buddha nature, or the divine love. So this very longing itself is the impetus or the expression of the beloved, or the way that fundamental Buddha nature can be realized. So this longing, if we didn't have this longing, there wouldn't be much happening. So the very longing, if we initially just approach the very longing inside of us on so many levels, for so many objects, the sweetness of the energy, the purity of that very energy, is a very sacred and divine movement. Now, what's the problem? What is, the, what is the fall from grace from this all-oneness or aloneness, this solitary only one, into this separation? And then the pain of separation, and out of the pain of separation, the arising of the loneliness. And I think it's important that we look at, it's the pain of separation. It's the desire for no longer being separated, not separate. That is what we move out towards and what we hope for in terms of relationship, camaraderie, etc., etc. The mind thinks it knows what it wants, but we all know 
that <laughs> anytime we've thought we've known what we wanted in relationship and we get it, then it gets very interesting. And then you read all of the Jungian books about how you're so attracted to that, which is in some ways opposite or parts of yourself. What does Robert Fly say? Either, in, either uh, develop it inside of yourself or marry it. One or the other. <laughs> so that the projection out there and then the attempt to come into union with, oftentimes it has a really good basis. There is that true, pure desire for wholeness, for completeness. But what happens once we get started is we get a little freaked out. And oftentimes, via the Jungian view, which I think is interesting, I mean, we, you know, we read lots of books, is to see that What's actually going on there is we pull, we're pulling back the projection. We're having a little difficulty with it. So we're then, um, what's said is that the one we marry, we completely try and change. And then when we've done that, then we're not interested in them anymore. Or marry is the wrong word. That's too traditional a word. Let's say partner. The one, the one we partner with, we're no longer interested because we end up changing. So what's going on here? What's going on here is the sense of awareness, the sense of longing, the sense of being that then is involved in a sense of separation. How did this happen? If we start from wholeness, if we start from oneness, if we actually can make a word that's all one, alone, how is it that we have mistaken? How is it that we've made a separation and we can be so dumb? And how is it that even after we've recognized the pain of our separation and we're attempting to restore wholeness, how could we again be so dumb in our approach to manipulate and control the objects of our longing or people or what we think are what we're in desire of. So one of the first one of the first points to be aware of is that the 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 fall from grace, the sense of separation, is something that occurs the moment I am experienced as a someone in relationship to a something. Now, this, is, it, it, this seems to be innate in all beings. So how is, how is it that this is a mistake and it's so innate in all beings? Well, the mystics say that the sense of inherent being or awareness, that I-ness, I am, is the divine. That's not a mistake. Then there's another I that begins to come. Then there's two I, then there's the creation of the second I. This is based on seeing objects, naming things. How do we name? We name based on whether we grasp at something and find it pleasurable, or we are in aversion with something that we're afraid of or not finding pleasurable that the mind begins to discriminate in dual terms, good, bad, pleasure, pain, right, wrong. And so the naming of the object creates a naming again of us. So then this inherent awareness that's just aware all the time, it's aware if you're sitting, it's aware if you're hearing, it's aware if you're confused, it's aware if you're clear, it's aware if you're tired, doesn't matter what it's aware of. There's just the inherent awareness in all beings. This then, from that basis, because of this grasping and pushing away, there arises the birth or the fall from grace of the mistaken second I. I am happy. I am sad. I am angry. I am a woman, I am a mother, I am an angry mother, I am a loving mother. <laughs> that there are all these experiences of oneness 
meaning that there's an exchange, a dance of energies and circumstances coming together, arising, moving so quickly there's really nothing to call <coughs> I or other if you paid attention. But nevertheless, we're grasping on to moments in the movie, not recognizing that the projector is instilling this sense of I am this, I am this image, I am that image, I am this image, I am that image. <coughs> the moment we create one image, we're involved in creating other images in relationship to it. And that's oftentimes our conflict, where we become aware of having conflicting images about ourselves, conflicting images of other people. Now that confusion is nothing but the inherent initially pure, always pure awareness of being that is not for one moment going to let you be fooled into thinking you're one thing and not the other. But how does, how does phenomena or your confusion present itself? In conflict. So the I that feels separate, the I that goes out looking for the other, is starting off on a wrong foot because it thinks it knows what it wants. It thinks it knows what it needs. Out of loneliness, the mind enters and feels separate and begins to conjure up what it's separate from. Now I have to look at my notes. Okay, so at this point, the only one or the alone or the all one has become two. And in the becoming two, it has created three. And this is where different philosophies, especially the Eastern and the Buddhist philosophies, begin to talk about different minds of consciousness. How there are certain, we can create so many objects or images, subtle and sublime images in our awareness that we're identifying with and attaching to, and we do not know we're doing this. Not only are we doing it regarding our own experience, we're doing it making judgments regarding all others who appear in our sphere of awareness. So then these images that we give inherent existence to, eyes, creating eyes all over the place, move into this conflict dynamic, which I spoke of earlier. It is this conflict dynamic which, in a sense, is extremely compassionate even though it's playing as a very violent and unhealthy, quote-unquote, or not very pleasurable experience. But it's doing what it can only do. If, if we set up duality, duality has to cancel itself out. Unless it is seen in the greater space of awareness as being a fabrication of the mind. What mind? The mind that is separate in the sphere of its awareness. Now, how did we do this? Now we have to look a little closer. There are some phenomena. The Buddhists talk about different kinds of phenomena that need to be observed if you're to come to any real understanding of the true nature of reality. And one of the hidden phenomena that needs to be observed is what are these images of I that I'm constantly creating, of self and other, that I'm not even aware of. How can I see this? The other hidden phenomena that's very important to see in answering, in investigating this question, this big mystery, how did this happen? How does loneliness continue to be such a powerful force in our, in our suffering? And how is it that it doesn't bring us joy and happiness, but it seems to bring us more sorrow? We have to look at what is what they call emptiness. Meaning that the appearance of all phenomena is in direct cause and effect relationship to previous moments of thinking and experience with one another. So what are these images of I, and what is this relationship that's going on all the time that we're not noticing. That if we could notice, 
we could have a better understanding of the source of our confusion and pain. Because the one thing about loneliness is it will never be satisfied. That the pain of its separation is always going to remain a pain as long as we continue to reach out for something that we consider separate. If we reach out for what we think we're looking for, and we find it pleasurable, and we grasp onto it, the very grasping onto it, from a scientist's point of view, it's quite obvious, changes it, kills it in the attempt to possess it, and gives us the confusion that it exists. How does it exist? Because I'm terrifyingly clutching onto it, but what I'm clutching onto it doesn't exist. So how could I possibly be satisfied? There's nothing there. But what is there is, oh, what I want is in here. I try so hard. I think I know what I want. I think this person is going to give me what I think I need. But in relationship with that person, what comes up instead? <laughs> Everything else. <laughs> if that object that I'm grabbing onto is something that is so disturbing to me, and I'm pushing it away, pushing it away, and trying to change it, then that which I'm trying to change doesn't exist either. But what does exist is my conviction that that is, and it's not the way I want it to be, and I have to turn it into something else. So in both those cases, who are we having a relationship with? Whether we're in aversion or whether we're in grasping. Who are we having a relationship with? Our own mind. Now, if we could have a relationship with our own mind, with an awareness or a harmony of what's going on, with an inquiry into its very nature, with a loving capacity to open up deeper and deeper and vaster and vaster, to have it reveal itself to us. We could then carry on in relationship with others, not as separate beings, but as very much the same expression of life that is the own mind revealing itself to itself. How do we get from there to there from here? Well, there's a couple of paths. And no matter what the tradition that you're following, there seems to be um, analogous inquiries and analogous ways of practicing. Dr. Wolf and other mystics have talked about a bird can only fly when it has two wings functioning. If one of the wings is not functioning, it can't fly. The two wings are symbols of wisdom, the wisdom of emptiness or the knowledge of the true nature of self or other or reality. And the other wing is the compassion or the loving kindness. A beautiful way I've heard this explained, and I should know who said this, but I don't know, I don't remember the name. Wesley called me up and said, Andrea, who said that? And I said, Wesley, I don't know. But a Hindu sage said, Wisdom shows me I am nothing. Compassion shows me I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. And I thought that was a beautiful and perfect expression of what on one level appears to be a dichotomy. And by very by very nature of our willingness to live out and develop these two aspects becomes a wholeness that is beyond what our mental capacity to understand it is. It transcends it. It goes past it. So, in the developing of compassion, one of the first things that we have to do is come smack down, sink into what we're finding to be our own experience. And what is our own experience? Pain of separation, longing, 
need for, loneliness, wanting, unsatiated desire, feeling not right, looking out for, for wholeness. One of the ways that we can approach this state of feeling is to simply accept it. And not just to accept it as a separate me only experiencing this. But if in the moment of loneliness, I could remember that millions of other sentient beings are feeling the same pain, the same sense of separation that I am feeling in this very moment. That sounds so simple, and that is such a powerful and potent antidote to (coughs) the confused and unreal sense of aloneness and separateness that we feel in loneliness. Another way we can work with the emotional feelings of longing and absence and needing is to begin to look at what are the emotions that I experience that I think I'm calling love. What is it that I call love in terms of how I reach out to other people and my agendas and having relationships with them? Now, we're entering into a domain that could get very tricky here. You can't go into this territory with this kind of question unless you're completely 100% willing to open your heart to what you see. If you start judging your behavior that is conditioned and has been conditioned from your parents, 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 grandparents, grandparents, great, 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 back into time, and if you want to try and judge and find the wrong in this, then you shouldn't do this practice. Because the more you see, the more separate and bad you're going to feel. But then the other approach is, the more you see, the more you open your heart to what is seen. Because that which you're seeing, you do not attach to. You simply remain the awareness in which this longing of the heart, this deep and sincere longing for the divine, brings you into territory where you begin to see all mistakes. Mistakes being the simple expression of beings who are separate, of beings who think they are separate, having the experience of separateness. So we begin to uncover things in ourselves like greed, jealousy, fear, desire, what else? Always ignorance. The basic anger, animosity. We could right there, because we have this longing to awaken, this longing to break the pain of separation, remain exactly where we find ourselves. So if I exist in a place of jealousy, a practice this practice, a particular practice to develop the wing of wisdom, besides the tongue lin of being in relationship with all others who at that same moment feel exactly what you're feeling, another approach is to, in the midst of the quote-unquote afflicted mind, none of us like to feel jealous, none of us like to feel angry, but drop the liking and the disliking. And just in the moment of recognition of that energy, to recognize that very energy of jealousy is a thought. It's a thought that I want what this other one has. (laughs) The recognition of that thought, that very thought is the thinker. There is no other thinker. There is simply that thought creating the experience of jealousy and your awareness, this inherent awareness that's longing buys into it hook, line, and sinker. And then has the image, has the mistaken image, I am jealous. Now, this practice is saying right there where jealousy arises, recognize that jealousy is 
an energy. It is a thought that you're conditioned to be thinking there, right then and there. I feel the energy. I become aware of the thought. I meet that thought. Now, there are two approaches here. The initial, the initial practice is you meet that thought with its beloved, so to speak. What is the opposite of wishing you had what someone else has? Is feeling happy for what they have. Again, this sounds like such a simple thing. This sounds like just, you know, big deal. The power of, in a moment, dropping the idea of wanting what someone else has and just, just stopping, ceasing, letting that thought turn into a thought of how wonderful that this person has this. Even if you don't feel it, see what happens. What can happen is so many other aspects of what's arisen in your awareness will start to unfold and give you all kinds of information that you never would have seen if you remained in the energy of jealousy and creating this false sense of separation of self and other. Because the mystic will say the truth is this other appeared in your awareness because that is you. And if you mistake and think that it's somebody else, you're mistaken. So you have the potential in that moment to drop the separation and to be as one. On that level, because we're in duality, to be as one means to find its opposite, means to find its antidote. And that is the practice of love and compassion, loving kindness in, in relation to afflictions of mind. We can take that and go into anger. What is, what, what is anger? Anger is a reaching out and not wanting things to be what they are out there. In the moment of anger, I could recognize that that's simply a thought that I have bought into, that something is not right out there. And if in that moment I could drop the thought, what would be there that the thought created is a huge amount of energy. An energy so big that the clarity that you would feel in that moment of just being there, letting go of that thought, would open up this vast space in your awareness where this inherent I, where this I of awareness, without the thought of I am angry, would simply be there. Again, what could be revealed is an incredible secret, an infinite secret that could go on and on and on in your awareness. Go into pride. When we feel arrogant and above and beyond everyone else, that in fact <coughs> we're judging everybody else out there that you're judging that is not right is a part of yourself that you do not accept. Is self-hatred, self-loathing revealing itself before our very eyes. If in the moment of pride and arrogance I could simply drop, recognize that that is a thought, that is an affliction, living itself out in my inherent and pure awareness that is longing for oneness with all, then what would arise there? If you drop arrogance, what remains is an exquisitely clear recognition of all beings and all phenomena perfectly revealing an aspect of self equally and perfectly. And every moment in your awareness becomes a moment to be grateful for, becomes a moment to be in divine relationship with. Because the space of openness and what appears in that space are no longer separate. So what's left? Desire. If in the intensity of desire, one could recognize that there is this longing of this inherent awareness that longs for union, and there is this idea of the object of my desire. So there is the, the 
the very pure longing, the energetic, and then there's the idea of, I want this, I want that, I should have this, this is what I need, this is what I'm going after. If in that moment we could remain in the pure, divine energy of longing itself and drop the object of thought, <coughs> the energy that would be there is the bliss of Tantra, is the great desire or the desireless state of longing. And again, I'm just saying words. These words are real (coughs) when you enter the state of practice. These antidotes or these practices mean nothing unless you use them. So, in terms of developing this wing of compassion, first for self and then for other, we have different paths. Now, why is it so important to recognize, to distinguish between what we think is love and compassion and these other states of mind that we demonstrate, such as lust, clinging, um, (laughs) desire, the need for security, the need to be accepted, the need to be approved of, the need to be cared for, There's nothing wrong with any of these feelings. But they need to be seen for what they are. Because not only you have them, but everyone else has them too. So if we're not seeing clearly, if we're not acknowledging what's there, then we're confused. That's the only problem. There's nothing wrong with anything that is there. But when what's there is mistaken to be other than what it is, then we're just creating mischief on top of mischief on top of mischief on top of mischief. So where's the end to that? So to distinguish between states of mind, to begin to like allow what we think are parts of ourself that are loving and compassionate and generous and to have them start speaking to you and showing you how there's hidden agendas and those hidden agendas are based on needs and those needs are based on feelings of inadequacy and feelings of pain and feelings of abandonment and feelings of sadness again takes you into dangerous territory dangerous only in one way if you begin to experience if you begin to allow these energies that have been repressed to reveal themselves to you. And then you, you absolutely <coughs> not. I refused. I, this is unacceptable. You then do another violence to yourself. You then inviting yourself to come in. And when you start to walk through the door, you're slamming it right in your face. <laughs> and this is how many people do practice. As soon as the expression of wholeness is starting to to reveal itself, there's this fear because there's attachment, there's identification with that which is being revealed. Now why is this going on? Because this is what we've been doing forever. So it's a conditioned, habitual tendency to identify and grasp and to cling. So we have to stay very aware. Oh, oh, how do we know this is happening? If you're struggling. If you're struggling, there is resistance. The very nature of struggle, the very feeling, the very sensation, the tension, is the bell to just help you to recollect, to drop into pure awareness in that moment where you can allow the discomfort and the gross energy of that conflict to just be there. This is a door that in order to go through you have to be completely willing. And not just willing with your aspiration 
you have to be willing with your skill. You have to have the concomitant skill or method to help your aspiration to go through this. This is why we meditate. This is why we sit and we use the breath to inhale, to exhale. In the exhalation, we allow the letting go, the detachment, the releasing of all sorts, mental, physical, emotional identification. Whatever we think is there that feels so solid and so painful and so uncomfortable, we simply use the power of the breath to dissolve and release. This is such a powerful tool. Do you think it's a surprise that for so many thousands of years, so many people in so many different cultures meditate on the breath? It's an immensely powerful method. If you could use the inquiry into longing, experience the inherent reaching out, the wanting to know, this basic longing for the fundamental true nature of our being. If you can use that to keep you enthused to continue your inquiry into who you are, and then allow the display of mistaken idea and habit to show itself and use the skillful method of the breath and meditation to release what we're holding on to, what we're clinging, what we're afraid of losing, you could break through. You could break through the mistaken ideas about the object of your desire. The object of your desire is so pure and so vast and so beyond anything you could think of. And it's always calling you. It's oh, it's never not calling you. There isn't one moment that it's not whispering to you. It's because of this that we'll never be satisfied with any object. Absolutely Mick Jagger perfectly stated it. I can't get no satisfaction. And if that guy who had like anything at his fingertips can't, why do we think we can? <laughs> the very nature of desire will not satisfy you. If you're satisfied, then you're mistaken. And it shouldn't last for long. <laughs> Can anyone attest to anything other than that in their own experience? I doubt it. Okay, so we're distinguishing between the afflicted emotions or the emotions that are born of the mistaken sense of separate self and the mistaken idea that I know what I need, and we're distinguishing them. We're distinguishing them from what? From loving-kindness, from friendliness, from oh, what's considered mayatry, loving, loving-kindness, karuna, compassion, caring, generosity of spirit, tolerance, patience. All these qualities of mind, what, what do they all have in common? What they all have in common is a spacious quality to their being. They're not things that you can imagine. Tolerance arises where it's needed in relation to something that has arisen. You cannot predetermine what tolerance is. You cannot decide this is it. Tolerance is something that arises in this inherently open space of being that is not grasping or clinging to anything in relation to what is arising. Patience, generosity, all these qualities arise in the midst of their afflicted qualities arising. 
When I am aware of jealousy, when I am aware of anger, when I am aware of judging, when I am aware of putting somebody in a box and stuffing them somewhere, it's then that in the intensity of that, that there could be first tolerance for my own mistaking, generosity to my own spirit of being that truly knows this is not what I want to do, patience for this continued over and over habitual tendency that does the stupidest things in spite of what it sees the results are. All these qualities of mind have to arise right out of the experience of confusion or they're not anything. They literally emerge out of an open, spacious heart. They're nowhere else to be found. So, little by little, what's happening here? We're getting the sense that it's not anything that we're looking for, but the path or the process of longing itself is the movement through yourself, through God, to yourself, to God. And it reveals, moment by moment, step by step, what is next. What is next is a perfection that no thought could ever come close to. All thought, by virtue of its existence, is a separation from what the reality that is. You begin to know that. You know how you know that? Because you see that everything you think you should do, if you start paying more and more attention to it, Everything you think you want, everything you think you, it, it, you just watch it. And what do you see? You see it arise, you see it play out, and you see it dissolve. And you see that what was there before it had that thought, what was there while that thought was going on, and what remains when it's come and gone, is still longing, is never satisfied, is always burning burning, burning, and is also becoming softer because it's been trying so hard. It's been seeing so much suffering. It's been making so many mistakes. And you start to have a little kindness and compassion for yourself. You start to see that all my sins are nothing but my ignorance. And my ignorance is nothing but the birth of my wisdom. Without ignorance, without pain, without mistakes, without bondage, there's no liberation. Our very birthrights as human beings is to awaken to the infinite compassion and wisdom that we have always been. But what do we need to realize that? We need adversity. We need confusion. So one of the important things here is that we stop judging ourselves and others, no matter how mistaken awareness reveals itself to be. You cannot deepen in this path with awareness and concentration if you don't have an open heart. It is absolutely impossible. The willingness to be with and the capacity to see have to be in proportion. Otherwise you begin to be violent. You begin to be violent towards yourself and other people. You become extremely self-righteous. You create all kinds of boundaries around you about how things have to be and how other people need to be. And you find more and more ways to separate yourself. And then you feel the pain of that separation. And then you're back. All our confusion is constantly giving us opportunity to remain in the pure presence of the awareness of this inherent longing 
and purity of our very hearts for our very hearts. We long for ourself. We long for our wholeness. We long to find ourself in oneness with everything, every person who appears in our awareness. How can we do that? There's only one place to do it, in your own awareness. So we're going to do a little meditation. without changing your breathing and just become aware of breathing in and breathing out. Let your attention ride your breath and just relax. Allow yourself to feel whatever your breath is feeling. Breathing in, imagine that you're invoking your deepest wishes, your wishes for complete acceptance of your being. And breathing out, let go of any <coughs> thoughts or sensations, or feelings that seem to be obstructing or keeping you out (coughs) of your own heart. (coughs) Breathing out, experience the spacious air inside your body going out in all directions through your skin, out your feet, out your face, your back, out of your heart and just merging with the space in the room. Now breathing in, let yourself come closer to your longing. And breathing out, allow it to release Allow it to continue to be itself without you grabbing hold of it. Breathing in, invite, and breathing out, let be.
Don't let thoughts carry you away from a deeper inviting. But there's no need to push any thoughts away either. Just be aware. If there are thoughts, there are thoughts. And continue to release, breathing out, and letting be what is not solid. We don't really need to hold anything. We really need to continue to invite our deepest longing. Don't hold on to any thought or any sensation. Simply allow whatever is arising to free itself in the space of your open field of awareness. Experience the space that has room for anything, any thought, any cynicism, any fear, any concern, any unknown, to arrive and depart. begin to sense that your very awareness is a sacred altar in which you invoke all offerings to your divine. All phenomena of your mind, your thoughts, your feelings, your sensation are all offerings in the pure space of your awareness. Breathe deep into your body, deep into your abdomen, and soften your stomach muscles. Breathe through your chest, breathe through any tension of holding in the body. Become aware of your face and relax any tension there, your eyes, your shoulders, Let your belly soften and expand. 
and let your breath just permeate out through every cell of your body and dissolve in the space in the room. Don't push anything out of your heart. Any thought, any reaction, any feeling. Simply be aware of it and don't grab hold of it by clinging or pushing it away. Simply remain aware, use the breath and let it release. Remember that your out-breath is a dear, dear friend. Allowing you to stay present and allowing you to stay free. Longing that has no object. Loneliness is a great gift when it directs us into our heart that is wishing for. All we have to do is let go of what we think we want in any moment to simply stay with the direct sensation of longing. And there we meet a heart that's radiant and quivering with desire, with desire to open and let be. Are there any questions? <laughs> Comments? <laughs> Does anyone want to share their experience or any anything? Oh, this is a good this is a good uh, <laughs> Got to remember this one. <laughs> when we've when we've gone on too long and we, there's no more time for questions, <laughs> I encourage you to ask anything. Um, I'm not sure if I got into the nitty gritty of loneliness, Karen. Did I? Yeah. Oh, good. Is there loneliness, the same kind of loneliness you're speaking of, in a death? 
in longing for a person? I think grief is the is the the desire to have what one remembers one had and clings on to. And it's a missing and it's in many ways it's it's a reflection of the love and and what was there. And it's also a reflection of how one is living in the past. And there's nothing wrong with that. Dr. Wolf, our teacher, for mourned the death of his wife for five years. And people said to him, what's wrong with you? You know, you're supposed to be enlightened. What are you doing? And basically, he was experiencing what was arising in the sphere of being, of his being. He was completely allowing it and staying open to it. And the ego would like to think that if you do that, everything, dis- everything you don't enjoy disappears like in a few seconds or minutes or days. But we don't know because that very experience could be exactly what your heart needs to know something about itself. And when it's time for that to be gone, it'll be gone. Sometimes we hold on to what we feel because we know ourselves in that feeling. And in the lack of that, we don't know what will be there, so there's a little fear. So if we just keep allowing whatever's there, then the whatever's there will reveal itself to us. We don't have to push anything or force anything. But we have to keep dropping our ideas. Because when we think we know what's happening, that limits or stops the process of the continual unfolding and revealing of everything that's expressing itself. And grief is something that is cellular, emotional, mental. It includes all aspects of mind and body. So if we try to diminish it in any way, then we, we prevent it from revealing and becoming what it, what it wants to express. Yes, sir. I just uh, want to add one thing that I think this is an excellent example of how the mind, by labeling an emotion, creates suffering needlessly. In other words, the emotion that we call grief or sadness. If we think of it as negative, oh, here's grief. Oh, I, I wish I didn't feel this. Oh, I wish I had that object back. All that is nothing but mind, mental, going on. If we're just with sadness, it's just another color of love. Do you know what I mean? It's just love appearing in in a form we're not quite used to. Uh, And if we just purely experience it that way, we experience it very sweetly. We don't experience suffering. It's not we're not experiencing sadness, but we're not experiencing sadness as suffering. We're experiencing sadness as a color of life, a beautiful, wonderful hue in the whole pile of life that we would not want to be without at all because you'd be dead I mean, you know, physically, right? So it's that this is where this practice that she's uh, describing takes us not getting rid of any emotion but seeing the true nature of the emotions and seeing that those, those emotions are just all the colors of the world they're the colors of the emotional world and then we appreciate and enjoy them just like we do walk around in a forest or you know. I'd like to thank you for quote, quoting from my man Mick. You might not expect to find an avatar leading the group that your parents love to hate, but <laughs> I'll never be your first beast of burden. <laughs> you never make a saint out of me. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> I 
<laughs> I encourage you to um, to use your breath as your dear, dear friend in the midst of ordinary circumstances of the day, whatever's going on, recollect, remain aware of the sensations in your body, remain aware that thought is only thought, and you can have any thought, but don't let thoughts have you, (laughs) unless you let thoughts have you, (laughs) in which case then you're you're cooperating. So you could use your breath to to really come in touch with um, with your whole body mind experience any time of the day. And if anyone wants to join us next Saturday uh, at Maggie's house, this is Maggie. Maggie, could you raise your hand? We're going to we meet for a few hours. Uh, it's a potluck and. We use the opportunity to um, to bring up any questions about how we integrate our teachings. You know, how in direct experience, what's the nitty-gritty of this practice in this particular situation? And it's actually proven to be extremely, I think it's very wonderful how we can um, go into the, the ins and outs of things. And next week, we're going to begin, we usually just sit in meditation, but we're going to begin um, a Zorba will will lead us in a a, chi, a key key meditations that are taught um, at the Aikido Dojo I study at. So, uh, if anyone is interested, you could talk to Maggie, and she'll tell you where she lives. Do we have any announcements? No. Okay. Um, It's been very, very wonderful to be with you. Peace be with you.